You're listening to Healthy Discussions, a podcast supported by the Healthcare Leadership Academy, where we have conversations exploring big ideas in healthcare with our guests. I'm Zach Hassan, a junior doctor from Scotland. If you're interested in how we can make the health system better, then this is the podcast for you. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Dolly Theus, who's studying her PhD at Cambridge University's MRC Epidemiology Unit. She stood for the Conservative Party in the 2017 general election and is an experienced campaigner on issues such as a 50-50 gender balanced parliament and for the veterans charity Forward Assist. I hope you enjoy. Dolly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. And it's very good to have you. Now, the, the reason that I wanted to talk to you is that I think that uh, sort of politically speaking, we come from maybe opposite ends of the political spectrum. But yeah. we share this fascination with kind of how how to make good health policy. How do, you know, governments, um, you know, what can governments do to improve that? So I'm, I'm interested to know what motivated you to become interested in that. In, in health policy, well... I mean, it's a funny, um, it's a kind of longer story because it all, if you look at my background, it also, it also doesn't quite look like it adds up or makes complete sense. Um, but to me, it's all connected and basically started um, uh, kind of within political campaigning, very much focused on the environment. And I was particularly interested in food systems. So I feel I've had that interest within food uh concentrating more on trying to encourage people or um, create sort of a world where people is much easier for people to grow their own food. That was my original interest, which feels like it absolutely connects to the interest that I have in health and and the kind of food systems now. But um, but the journey getting there was not necessarily that clear. And I found that particularly interesting. I basically ended up in a think tank, um, the Centre for Social Justice, before uh, coming to do my PhD. And um, and I saw when, you know, the think tank was starting to think about doing something on obesity, I saw the issue as totally related to all of my environment-focused background, but actually hadn't appreciated that, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, that the public health world and the environment world in terms of people that sort of would identify as being one of those um, parts wasn't always as connected as it is today. So you'd, you you wouldn't necessarily have people in the environment world, whether that's academia, campaign, whatever, thinking that they're in public health. But I see kind of public health and or uh, population health and planetary health is totally intertwined. And, um, and it was only, uh, well, which is very helpful now thinking about the whole thing. It was only more recently that I started to realize that um, I don't know if you've seen these, but the the images that they use at school to show children, teach children about the ecosystem don't have pictures of human beings in it. <laughs> so, we're, so we're kind of raised, you know, thinking about these two worlds um, uh, independently of each other. Um, but as I've always sort of been interested in the environment and the connection, particularly, as I said, through food, I feel like I've actually been in sort of health policy for far longer than my background on paper probably would indicate. Mm-hmm. But the the kind of defining moment of that move towards public health happened at the think tank when they announced that they were going to do some work on childhood obesity and the link with deprivation. And that was when I um, just said that is absolutely my issue. I have to do it. I you know want to do that report. And it was through that that um, I realized how you know how much there was to learn in the whole 
uh, world of epidemiology and public health. And that then took me to Cambridge um, to do the PhD. So that's a kind of short. <laughs> that's short a short version. There. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> many bumps on the way well that's that's interesting because there's a lot of people i think who would have been in that position who would have said well you know that's something too complicated it's research it's not something that i'm going to get involved in as a more of a policy person i'm thinking you know what was different about how you thought about it I just saw, as I said it, I just saw it as completely connected. And um, and I've, I think my interest in sort of wanting, I basically worked on a campaign a long time ago that got people to grow their own food. And it was almost like online dating for growers and landowners. <laughs> so the idea being that you could um, put in your postcode and say you live in an inner city area and you haven't got a garden, you live in flats or whatever, it would connect you with someone up the road who did have a garden, but perhaps didn't have the time or they were elderly or whatever. And they loved the idea of having someone who was interested to come and grow their own food, needed some land. And the idea was that you don't exchange um, money, you sort of, uh, you know, split the produce either way. And, um, and so that was my kind of interest in the food system side of things, and then went on to do more research when I was a researcher at Parliament on food waste. And all of it was a kind of realisation that we are just so far removed from what we eat and we eat every day, have to eat every day. And the idea that we sort of don't know where a lot of our food comes from, we don't understand the impact of it, we can't see that, um, just fascinates me. And then the kind of health consequences, and it's not just the health consequences as we think of them mm. in relation to kind of physical health issues and, the, and diet-related diseases, it's all of it. It's our... It's our, it's how culture is, you know, defining when it comes to food. Why are there certain shifts towards, you know, certain food types that are cool or not? Or there are some that have kind of class issues. You know, we talk about yummy mummy areas where it's all like deliciously elephant, you know, whereas there's something, a completely different idea when it comes to different types of food. Mm -hmm. How do all of these get created? And how does that differ geographically? And I'm talking kind of on a global level as well. Mm And I just find it all fascinating that they can have, you know, we can may treat the um, health consequences like type 2 diabetes of a poor diet, for example, as completely removed from everything that I've just set out, whereas I see it as totally linked. And if we don't mm-hmm. think in that way, we're probably not going to tackle the issues very well. So that totally makes sense to me, everything that you're saying. But there's there's <laughs> one thing that, you know, I, I still, I just really want to ask you about it because it's, it's interesting to me. So I hear you speaking about the kind of the environmental issues and the kind of the issues to do with geographic variation and the issues to do with, well, how do we actually sort out some of these processes so that we're a bit more connected to our food? And those all seem to me like, well, if I picture someone who cares about those issues, I probably picture somebody who's like on, you know, not just the left wing, but like, you know, really out towards the left wing, you know, part, you know, particularly sort of people who might be involved in protests um, and also the field of public health. You know, I, I think of it as a field that is dominated by a lot of left leaning people. And that's that doesn't apply to you. You know, you're 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 more of a, a right leaning person. And I'm wondering, you know, is is there something here about reclaiming that issue for, you know, people of different political views? 
I mean, it's such a fascinating question. And I'm obviously, you know, challenged on it and think about it and all the time because um, I didn't come from a conservative background. Um, my, I don't think I know a single member of my family, including extended family, who votes conservative. So, um, so it wasn't, um, I had to sort of come out age 15 as, well, that, as a Tory. That's a whole other, that's, that sounds like it would be an interesting story in itself. Um, well, I can definitely, definitely tell you that story. But they, you know, my I was sort of raised in a um, non, you know, my parents aren't sort of party members or mm-hmm. that kind of actor, but they are, they know they're definitely not conservative. So they sort of, they're somewhere <laughs> between kind of lean, um, green, liberal, Labour, you know, they were sort of Blair voters and then have since shifted into the politically homeless territory and have been there for quite a few years. Um, and uh, and both come from uh, upbringings that were incredibly anti-conservative, um, kind of in the eighties, in the heart of um, mm. you know Thatcher's Thatcher's time. So it took a lot for me to um, to sort of really have to come to terms with it myself because it was so adverse, and it was adverse also to my school situation as well. I was at a very left-wing school, famously left-wing school. I mean, lots oh, of wow. Labour politicians send their kids there, so it's like you know the ground, the Labour breeding ground, um, and and it wasn't easy as well. I mean, I you know I I was held to account by my by my fellow students at that school on it. But what it did do is made me think really deeply about why I am and how that was even possible and what the connections are with all of these issues. Because as you say, I think in a very kind of complex systems, you know, social determinants type way, but um, I uh, affiliate or identify in terms of the conservative tr- tradition with the sort of Disraeli, you know, what's commonly known as the One Nation um, conservative tradition, which is essentially defined by its lack of ideology. It's defined by its pragmatism. It's defined by its, you know, um, kind of common sense approach. But with the ultimate goal is to enable people or um, provide a society which enables people to be responsible themselves. What I find so interestingly commonly misunderstood within the kind of centre-right conservative um, party friends of mine, or, you know, people that I've talked to long and hard about this is their concept of what achieves personal responsibility or the conditions that enable personal responsibility to happen are often overly simplified or they're Mm. too simplistic. There's a very kind of common rational notion that you just need to give people information and they just need education and that's it. And then they can suddenly change their behavior. And anyone knows uh, who knows anything about behavior change and, you know, decision-making and choice fallacy and all of these sorts of things knows that decision-making and behavior is determined by a whole host of different things. So unless you start addressing all of those, um, you're never really going to provide a society where you have people who are able to be personally responsible. And on top of that, if you then say that you just need to give people information, we don't need you know, help on any of the other issues, and you end up in a blame culture, then you end up with this horrible situation where you've, you're not tackling the problems, you're, you're not providing a society that truly makes anyone, regardless of background, personally responsible and with full equal opportunity. Um, but you end up blaming them as individuals um, uh, for that, for any negative outcomes of that. And that is just a nightmare <laughs> society. Mm. Um, and what I don't want is to is to create a dependency 
culture or, you know, I, w- I wouldn't want the idea of anyone being raised with the idea, of course, you know, you get looked after and you don't have to do anything yourself. No, we want to we want to fo- foster true independence um, in, in and I mean independence as an in independent from having to to have help from, you know, whoever it is that you would need that. And um, so that's really my kind of, I guess, the my philosophical um, background. But I, I, as I say, I've had to think really, really deeply about this. So it's always um, fascinating when people are sort of like, but how can you be in public health and a conservative? Yeah, but, but potentially lots of points of agreement, you know, between you yeah. and me and, and what you're saying, especially about the um, kind of wanting people to be kind of free from some of these social determining factors, which maybe limit their choice and being able to kind of, uh, you know, make use of their agency, um, you know, and for that to be like a sustainable thing. So that le- leads quite nicely into talking about obesity, actually. So I was wondering, you've kind of told us what kind of got you first interested in that. But I wonder maybe as a sort of more of a policy um, researcher now, where do you think this field is going in terms of, you know? Oh, it's such a big question. And I mean, I am so thrilled I was ever given the opportunity. And I have to thank the Centre for Social Justice and particularly, um, she's now Baroness Stroud, Philippa Stroud, who was the CEO of um, the CSJ at the time, was really the one who gave this opportunity to me because I, at no point, even then, I I thought it was an absolutely fascinating issue. I did not think it would be as defining of the way I think about the world because um, it's it translates to so many areas. The things that you discover when you're um, researching the kind of issue of obesity are relevant for so many areas. And I really would say far beyond, you know, public health, health, all things that people might obviously connect with it. It is, it's because it's such a complex issue and because it is so loaded with strong opinion. (laughs) You talk to anyone, you say that you're an obesity policy it is absolutely loaded with personal experience, personal opinion, judgment. You know, I know what, of course, this is the only way that you need to solve it by someone who has never <laughs> been in that, you know, the field or has no kind of background in it. There's a kind of, oh, you just need to have this. And, you know, I think this is the solution. I mean, I literally <laughs> never have a conversation with anyone about what I research without someone giving some some free advice. And um, <laughs> And so that in and of itself is absolutely fascinating. And I think it demonstrates the, again, trying i'm so interested in tackling um these issues so properly solving these sorts of issues these big mega challenges and same with the environment and the kind of climate crisis at the moment same with a lot of other the kind of racial injustice issues you know i i have campaigned on various um queer issues in the past and there are a lot of similar patterns themes emerge um about how to th- think about tackling these sorts of things so um and within obesity the reason why is that you know we have a i'm giving talking about this in in regards to the um uk context but you know we've got a very treatment focused concept of health um thanks to having an amazing you know nhs service um we we the kind of downside of that is that we don't we have quite forgotten what prevention actually means and when even the fact that obesity policy is the responsibility of the department of health which essentially is you know 90 plus percent focused on the nhs 
um, it's you're already sort of starting on the wrong foot or you're starting in the wrong place because yes, it, you could argue, okay, the Department of Health ultimately leads, but it's it could be that it um, it leads in terms of convening the other government departments for you know whether it's your introducing policies about travel or active travel or um, food environment, which would involve uh, DEFRA, whatever it is. It could do that, but it's just the wrong mindset. Mm-hmm. And I think unless you have actually created a government setup that deals with issues properly in terms of the starting point, um, you're probably never quite starting in a way that you're going to tackle the issues effectively. And then it comes into a whole load of other issues of, you know, again, as I was saying, the kind of idea, oh, you just need to give people information. If you if you have that in your head as the solution and it doesn't matter what evidence you see to the contrary that is the way you think it should be solved you're also not going to be tackling it very effectively so it raises all of these about not just how to solve a complex issue but what Mm -hmm. kind of conditions within policy do you need to even think about how you solve these sorts of issues so I feel like Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot more than I ever anticipated about um about it all Mm -hmm. the thing that interests me about what you've just said is that, you know, we've kind of in the scientific you know community known for a while that, you know, preventative care would be less expensive and better for people than waiting until they get obese and all of the health problems that go along with that. But for some reason, it's not really translated into anything being done about it at a government level. So what, where's, where's that gap coming from yeah. and, and how you know do you have any ideas about how you overcome that well i um i realize i'm i didn't quite answer your original question in terms of what i was just talking about and and this brings me back on to answering that original question which is where this whole field is going and i i mean there's where this whole field is going versus where i think it should be going and i'm going to go where i think it should be going so we just push it in that direction <laughs> <laughs> but um we you know my unit for example is very typical of a epidemiology focused public health research unit we produce a lot of research that says you know if you're this active you're less likely to have this outcome or if you have this diet you you increase your risk of type 2 diabetes or whatever we produce so much research like that. And I see those in headline newspapers. We're all familiar with them. You know, you eat a bit of processed meat and you're going to get cancer or, you know, however else this kind of research is interpreted. And essentially what that whole body of research is saying is telling us stuff we already know. We broadly know that you need to sort of eat well and be active. Um, in fact, we, you know, anytime that we're doing kind of qualitative research in terms of interviews and stuff with people, you know, people living with obesity or not doesn't doesn't matter. Everyone broadly knows what it what it looks like to kind of lead a healthy a healthy life, or at least healthier than uh, if they're not necessarily leading an overly healthy life. What it would mean to lead a, a bit healthier life. So that's not the issue. What the issue is is what to do, and I and I do hope that the focus in terms of research will be on how interventions work in practice, not what works, which is again the problem, um, the problem way we tend to think about kind of evidence based policy. Because the assumption immediately with that is if you just increase the amount of evidence that's being disseminated to policymakers or used by policymakers, then policy will automatically improve. Mm-hmm. And that's like a very common idea for people to hold in their minds, when actually we don't know if that's true. 
we don't know that if academia got really good at disseminating policy, whether policy would necessarily improve because there isn't actually that much research out there about Mm. whether that would do that. Um, So more than more than and and also the idea being that, you know, uh, and this embeds it, that you build the evidence of what works, i.e. like a policy intervention, then you get government to introduce it. And then Bob's your uncle, you've solved the problem. And the problem with that is that it doesn't um, it doesn't recognize or design into the fact that when you start introducing a new intervention, a new policy or whatever, there are so many unintended intended consequences of that, which also could be further problems or different problems that we can't even anticipate. So I hope that the direction of travel will not only be in moving towards producing evidence of um, how things work in practice, which is much more about kind of monitoring and evaluation style research, um, but also to see it as not the end. They're, they're very rarely being a kind of policy intervention or policy solution. That's just the end in and of itself. You know, we should almost be thinking and complex systems kind of research is is definitely becoming much more talked about. I can I can I know I'm in it. So you sort of end up with your own bias of like <laughs> of course I hear loads of people talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Step outside and it's like no one no one knows what you're talking about. No, um, but it's more just the, the kind of intervention and policy space needs to also think about policies in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, we're, we're very far also away from that because um, the political world, what I'm seeing in my current research, is that the feedback loops um, that policymakers receive are still very much towards um you know, patting each other on the back when you've got a great idea, not so much when you're starting to implement things, which can often be very slow. It could, it, it can seem like nothing's moving in the right direction and all you're doing is spending loads of money and, you know, or not improving the issue or whatever. And so we need to sort of create a system where the feedback loops are much more about really quality, high quality systems. So policy process systems, monitoring systems, evaluation systems, and trial and error, kind of fostering a really entrepreneurial environment and and culture in government policymaking, which, uh, you know, is easier said than done. Um, But we should be kind of really, we shouldn't be criticizing policymakers if they introduce policies that don't have a huge evidence base, but they are, as in, will they? solve the problem or whatever but are likely to based on evidence of the risk factors Um, but what they will promise is you know we're going to introduce this and then we're going to evaluate it and monitor it really closely so that if there are really you know bad long-term short-term medium-term consequences or whatever we can tweak them much quicker um, or stop a program if it's if it's clearly you know not going in the right direction sort of thing um, but that's a very, very different mindset to what we have at the mm. moment. You're expected to, as a government, to announce a policy that works. You can say it works and then you introduce it and then that's it. And actually, when it comes to population level interventions, you rarely have evidence of what works. And if you do, it's often in another country which may not have the same you know, context uh, yeah. to the country that your position that you're introducing it to. But getting people to the point where they understand that in a, a less critical is is a whole thing in and of itself. But it takes policymakers to be, you know, brought um, to get that and be able to communicate it confidently. You know, saying it's it's actually not what we shouldn't worry mm-hmm. when there isn't always a really strong evidence base of how how something works in practice. So you've had 
direct experience of kind of working in the policy world and it sounds like it's quite different to you know working in healthcare or um sort of research because you know that doesn't sound controversial to me at all that some interventions you might want to have might not have the same kind of strength of evidence as others because you know well you, you might just not have the evidence it doesn't mean it's not true it just means that you have maybe low quality evidence that it's true so i'm thinking based on your knowledge of how the policy world works how do you sort of nudge people in a in a more the direction that that you want if they're just thinking oh i want to see the the answer to my problem and i want to be able to sort of do it now yeah it's a really so such an interesting question because it relates to some work that i've been doing outside of my phd which is around framing and and again this is another side effect of um or unintended consequence of my own research was getting really interested in framing because it is exactly that you know, how when you know, and ironically, there's evidence on this, but there is evidence on the fact that even if someone is provided with the evidence of something, um, and it's very high quality evidence, if it doesn't match their worldview, they they will reject it, they're very likely to reject it. And I think we do that all the time as human beings without even realising we seek, you know, the kind of uh, confirmation of our own opinions, more than we probably even realize. And we, even um, people in academia, will find it much harder to accept evidence that goes against our worldview to evidence that confirms it. And um, being truly open to evidence and evidence that you know tells you a different worldview, always to, fairly to everything, is a very, very difficult thing for a human being to do. No more place <laughs> or sector fosters that than politics because you are winning elections based on a different worldview <laughs> like it's your job um to have that and um and so what uh this kind of the world of framing research is really interesting and what it provides is an understanding that um you know if you fr if you're framing issues in a way that gets someone that speaks to someone's worldview and it's based on the evidence of whatever, then you're more likely to get them to understand it. So, for example, um, if I'm speaking to, uh, you know, a Conservative Party person who's so strong on, you know, no nanny state, we don't want any government intervention, people should just be, they should be free to have whatever choice they have. I will then ask, you know, but is there a free choice in the world? You know, are people given a free choice based on where they live, their background, whatever, to eat the same, you know, have access to the same healthy options as whatever? And they'll say, yes, you know, there's vegetables and fruit, they're all really cheap, you know, but are all houses fitted with adequate kitchen um, uh, units, you know, whatever? I mean, I've been looking at some of the housing, social housing work, and it's it's depressing um, how many, how normal it is for people's homes to not actually come with adequate facilities like that um, and so when you start painting a picture that uh, based on a worldview that's the idea that we just need people should have free choice you know that can be challenged because it's again a very overly simplistic view of what we actually have and um, and it will speak what much more than me saying you're wrong you know the evidence says that this is this is what needs to be done if someone that doesn't sound like it fits with their worldview, they're more likely to reject it. So you sort of have to understand where people are coming from, how they see the world, and ultimately 
everyone you know that I speak to certainly about this issue they don't want a world where it's really hard to be healthy mm-hmm. you know they don't want a world where it you, you know the cards are stacked against you and you're more likely to end up with so what what do we ultimately agree on we we want a world that where it's easy to be healthy mm-hmm. easy and enjoyable and it's not ste- steeped in you know how affordable it is you know, social connotations around it, anything like that. So um, you just have to work back from there. If we both mm-hmm. agree that it's on that, but we've got different, very different worldviews, then how can we sort of get the person who has a very different worldview to understand it from that so, perspective? So go- government has like a number of sticks and carrots available to yeah. it, you know, in yeah. terms of both on the financial side and kind of the non-financial side. And I, I think you've kind of said that there's there's been maybe a little bit too much just kind of thinking we just give people information and that will sort the problem out. And you talk about, well, it's not just a simplistic solution. It's that something that we maybe have to get there slowly and have processes to monitor and, um, you know, see if it's working and evaluate those policies. But the, the question for me still is, well, you know, what should those things that the government try out be? You know, should they start banning things should they start um forcing uh you know the food companies who are making a lot of these processed foods to you know just not include those ingredients what what kind of things would you want to try out well i sort of would work back from a really strong vision of how the world would look if it really was easy for everyone to live a healthy life and all have that as an option and um and then you know we know it's this is anyone in this field of research knows that there's no such thing as even i mean people we talk about no silver bullet there isn't even like 10 things that would solve this <laughs> you know there there are so many different things different um areas to focus on that i would start from that very strong vision of how it would be and i actually have been talking to people about how poor the communication is of that vision I don't see very frequently whether even like imagery, if you're using imagery, I don't see very frequently imagery of how the world would look Mm -hmm. um, or the UK would look if it was a place that was conducive to good health. Whereas I sort of can see it in my brain and it's, and I am really interested in the um, use of good communication tools, audio, visual, not just the kind of written form to communicate that vision and then people start to go oh gosh you know I didn't I had never thought about how hard it is on my high street or you know how crap cycle infrastructure is a lot of the place that you go how dangerous it is to cycle in a lot of places and once you start getting people to see around them how not conducive it is or how not fair it is or how not easy mm-hmm. it is um, dependent on where you are, then you start to go, OK, but, you know, if you didn't have this, um, if there was a licensing planning law that absolutely meant that you couldn't have X amount of takeaways, you know, in one place or uh, you couldn't have cycle lanes that just stopped <laughs> halfway through a road, <laughs> you know, and then people start to think about it. But then that's those are the what's that's the kind of idea, the policy ideas. I'm also interested, as as you know, from my research in then the processes of making that happen, because it's all good and well having great ideas and lots of people have great ideas. We don't we don't need that many more ideas. We've got loads to pick from already, already Mm -hmm. out there. So then how do you make those happen? And how do you make sure that the, the best ideas actually get picked? And I wonder if 
the way that researchers, clinicians communicate with policymakers, you know, what what could what could we all be doing better to make sure that mm. the best ideas get picked and the ones that aren't so good don't? Well, you would have to. So this is it's a it's such an interesting way to even phrase it because you would have to be very clear about what you mean in terms of your best list. So say let's just hypothetically, there are fifty policies that could be picked. Your top ten might not be the top 10 of a current politician, for example, and you know you have this meeting with them, how are you going to convince them that your top 10, whatever is why? You would then have to say, my top 10 are these because of whatever it is. This is most likely to have the greatest impact to the greatest number of people. This is most likely to be most effective when it comes to high-risk groups, blah, 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 blah. You're more likely, I'm assuming, to base your best, what which are the best on the effectiveness and probably equitable outcomes, likely to be equitable outcomes, those may not be the best options for a politician because it may be that um, you know they're not publicly acceptable. There there are genuine feasibility issues with making them happen. Um, there might be other priorities of the government at the moment that clash. Mm-hmm. You know there are lots of other reasons that make a, a a policy idea kind of the the best for different people and i think the best policy solutions are the ones that happen <laughs> so so i would you know there's no point um at given time it's not saying you give up on ever trying to push things that are much more ambitious and um you know less likely to get through because of political acceptability whatever history has taught us that things that we can't believe could be introduced you know can be um but understanding in any given moment what other con- um considerations have to be taken into account in order for a policy to happen is really important and to sit in a very it's very easy to sit in the kind of ivory tower of academia and say god you know what a rubbish set of policies that the government's just introduced unless you understand why that has happened which may be that they haven't thought about the issue that well you know that could be a reason but it's right what's the point of just waving your finger and saying oh what a crap thing if you genuinely want to see things change how can you then help contribute to that by understanding okay these are the things that could you know that really are the best things that should happen could be game changing and we also know that we may not have evidence of how they work so you could also use that argument you know we don't always have the evidence part of introducing policy is helps build the evidence so you're actually part of the evidence making um solution as a policymaker potentially mm. and i don't think a lot of policymakers see themselves as that or understand that as being part of their role so all of these sorts of things and just um and making it exciting i feel like there's you know it's very easy again to criti- criticize from the outside you know rewarding and recognizing when change and progress is being made and things are moving in the in the right direction is very important and you know in your job if you were criticized by the world all the time for your mistakes and I mean I you know that I always say that about people waving their fingers at politicians (laughs) (laughs) like people don't want to go into politics because of how much criticism there is and what a negative environment overwhelming environment it can be if we were a little bit more sort of understanding of the reality and 
you know, found how or tried to discover how we could contribute and help towards it, maybe we would all be in a better situation. <laughs> well, let's let's say I sort of go towards a more positive note, you know, in terms of recent government policies, like, do you think there's been stuff that's been genuinely steps in the right direction? I mean, there's been the sugar tax, um, you know, there has been pro uh, health inequalities as a whole are like more on the agenda. Um, mm. What, what yeah, do you think has been more positive? No, it's, I mean, exactly as you've just said, it is moving, it's moving in that direction. There are more and more, you know, population health level interventions being proposed and and implemented, you know, things are actually happening moving forward um, and far quicker than I think um, a lot of people have anticipated, especially in the last year, given that there is another public health issue that's, you know, connected, but <laughs> very, very much on the agenda. <laughs> um, and um, so that, so there are definitely positives to take. But I think the message is that constructive um, criticism and and um, advising or sort of holding government to account and government policymakers to account doesn't have to be negative mm. at all. In fact, and it's and it's far easier and it's more you know it's you you will find it takes a bit more effort to try and always look at the positive and make the positive case. Yes, but you know the great on that part, but not quite um, you know done and and fostering a culture of okay you've done that, but that's not it. You know mm. we've got a long way to go. Is is more. Um, it takes a bit more patience and um, yeah it is much it feels like for human beings it's much easier to snap and criticize and say oh that's rubbish and write something off what takes a lot more work and effort but with far more wide-reaching um, outcomes is actually being part of this the solution in some way and and creating a culture where everyone is kind of contributing to these problems if if they care about them and want to be part of that it's definitely easier to complain about the problems than to actually <laughs> exactly. come up with a solution so yeah for for you when you finish your phd I, i'm just kind of interested do, do you think that you'll stay in uh, academia or do you plan to sort of take that knowledge and and the skills that you've learned and go back to the world of of politics and policy um, well, I see, again, like the environment connection with obesity policy, I see the two as completely connected and impossible to um, to separate. Um, but I, I feel like I've only just begun my research journey. I have so much research I want to do, and it would not even be possible for me to fit it in my own lifetime. So the idea would be, my dream would be to be able to do research with, um, you know, amazing people and to be able to whatever commission create a world where we can do lots of exciting research that i so think to do needs both, to be done to sort of do the research and to use the research yeah 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 and to see that as as i say to see that as totally connected that going into politics and doing policy well and being a, a, a game changer shouldn't be seen as separate from research you know, if you want, you may not be doing the research yourself as a policymaker, but you actually are playing a role in what research can, uh, you know, can be done or evidence can be built on a given issue. Every single decision a policymaker makes, they should understand that that allows evidence to be built on how to solve a given issue. And if they if they felt more equipped or more confident in the idea of that experimenting, innovative, you know, almost entrepreneurial approach to policymaking, they may actually find that they don't have to always sort of be really sure about what they, you know, what will definitely work or what they definitely believe, mm. because they will say, well, you know, we don't always know how something's going to work in practice. So 
let's try. <laughs> it's better than waiting 30 years and then shit, you know, you've got really, really bad problem that happens um, later down the line, which is what we are in this situation. Mm-hmm. But if someone is ultimately motivated by, you know, political debate and not in actually solving issues, then you've got to find other ways to convince those sorts of people to care and to be, you know, to, to be part of considerate um, long-term policymaking, which mm. is which is quite a different mentality. So one, one question that I always end on um, is uh, whether there's a book uh, that's been particularly influential for you that you think our listeners should go away and read if they want to sort of hear more about some of the ideas we've been talking about. Yes, and it's incredibly related to um, to this whole research field. I would traditionally say anything by John Stuart Mill, particularly on liberty, because he is my he. I call him my history husband, but he's a nineteenth century <laughs> philosopher, and um, he has really shaped a lot of my uh, a lot of my thinking. Um, but so I, I'm cheekily putting that in there. But that's not the one book I would say uh, in direct answer to your question. It's by Lord Nigel Crisp, who was the chief executive of the NHS and is now in the House of Lords as an independent peer. And um, his book, Health is Made at Home, is like the manifesto of my dreams in many ways. It is the image of a health creating society that I hold in my own mind. And just reading someone else's words and communicating it so beautifully was just really a a kind of wonderful moment and where literature can do that. But I'm also very conscious that not everyone would look at a book like that, particularly people that may not see themselves as being part of health policy or whatever, and be overly thrilled (laughs) by the prospect of it. Um, You know, I know lots of people that say that they've got stacks of book recommendations they're still yet to go through. But not only is this not that long, uh, there is a a kind of summary manifesto of ideas at the end, um, but it's so much more than a book about health. Um, Although I should say that health is so much more than an issue that we tend to think about it. it. It is, it covers, you know, education, farming, Um, social care, I mean, you name it, healthy communities, relationships, mental health in the workplace, all these sorts of issues. And um, he connects them together and communicates them so beautifully. And he just clearly gets how to do this well. And coming as someone from treatment world, i.e. his focus as chief executive was on the NHS, it's fascinating to read someone, um, read something by someone who really gets the connection between the kind of health treatment and um, and wider public health um, side. So yes, Health is Made at Home by Lord Nigel Crisp. Well, you've been a, a very good saleswoman for that book. So uh... <laughs> He doesn't pay me, I promise yeah. you. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if we have to put that in as a legal disclaimer. Probably not, but we'll, we'll keep it in anyway. But uh, uh, Dolly, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. So um, yeah, just best of luck with the PhD and um, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. A real pleasure. If you like the podcast, the best way to support it at this stage is to tell your friends about it and share it on social media. You can use the hashtag Healthy Discussions or my Twitter handle at MontereyZach to tell me your thoughts about this episode. In the description, you'll find more about our guests' work and their book recommendations. Thanks to Health Education England North East, Health Education England South West and Medics Academy for supporting this episode. All of us at the Healthcare Leadership Academy are grateful for their support.